We uh, taught from this passage. We preached a multiple series on this passage. It was during our stewardship campaign. And we stressed that the local church is supposed to be like this to a large extent, that uh, we are to be a word-driven, dynamic body kind of church. We studied Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and following. And all that series is still, I think, on the website if you want to go back through that and study that. Rather than repeating the thrust of that series we covered a year ago, I wanted to approach the same text with a different homiletical purpose or aim as we consider this true historical account of the early church, what they were like, what their characteristics were like, what their activities were. I hope we will all see the benefit of living our Christian lives in community, taking full advantage of the Christian community. A lot of believers don't do that these days. They don't take advantage of the Christian community. They don't know how to live in community. They don't have good friends inside their church. You might not have good friends. You might not have a good connection in this church, and I want you to see that that's how God designed New Testament believers to be in community. The Christian life was never meant to be successful in isolation. Actually, this morning in our class, we studied about the benefits sometimes where God isolates you and He does special things in you, but that's the exception, not the norm. The norm is you're to be in a body of believers and benefit from that. We were created, in other words, recreated in Christ to be together and to work together. We actually designed that way. We're sort of loose parts if we're not working together and the work of the Lord doesn't get done properly if we're not together and working well. When we go light on our involvement in each other's lives, we hurt ourselves. We hurt our community. We diminish the love. We diminish what the Holy Spirit wants to do among us. Kevin DeYoung, a senior pastor at Christ Covenant Church in Matthews, North Carolina, um, said this. The man who attempts Christianity without the church shoots himself in the foot shoots his children in the leg, and shoots his grandchildren in the heart. What did he mean by that? Eventually, when you let the Christian community die out, it dies out, and the the grandchildren don't even have the faith anymore. Of course, our children are hurt by that. The long-term damage to the neglect of Christian fellowship, to the neglect of your responsibility to the church, is devastating to the church. You can see it all over the place in the evangelical church now, as people are are kind of pulled away to do their own thing, and and the church ends up being hurt. Our American culture, and I realize we have a lot of different backgrounds, but our culture has certain things in common. Um, And our culture works hard to sort of press us into their, their mold. And our culture has influenced us probably more than we're willing to recognize. Even I know myself, I've been influenced by American culture. You have too. You may not recognize it, but there are many ways in which the culture has pressed you into its mold, and you need to recognize that. I'll just give you a couple of examples. I, I think you would agree that America is a materialistic country. Would you agree with that? I mean, we're the most prosperous country. We have things people didn't even, couldn't even dream about before. Americans, more than any other nation, place a high value on material advancement. One's success in life is often measured by what one possesses. The neighborhood you live in defines your social standing. So does the car you drive, the clothes you wear, the trips that you're able to uh, take, come back and talk about. This materialistic emphasis shows up in your decisions. Believers often express a general lack of contentment with what they already own. It's not good enough. They need more. Why do you need more? Well, because the culture says you need more. Many people change their, their homes primarily just to go up social standing. They change their jobs just for that. 
They don't think about how can I be positioned in the kingdom of God to have more influence. They think first, this is the kind of home and car and clothes I want. And if they're honest, that's the decision they're making. Also, they're absent from spiritual activities. Brother Sean talked about prayer meeting, but prayer meeting doesn't help you advance materially. You've got other things to do on Wednesday night, so you won't be there because you already have other priorities, you see. And so it's, it's formed you into its mold. You are more materialistic than you're willing to recognize. I'll give you another one. Our country's tendency towards isolationism, that's had an effect on us as well. We call it wanting our privacy, right? I like privacy. I like my backyard. I don't want anyone to talk to me in my backyard. We Americans love our space. We call it room, room to do as we please. But isolation over time produces what? Coldness. People who are preoccupied with their own comfort and pleasure then are indifferent towards other people. Furthermore, isolation produces loneliness in you. You become isolated, you excuse your isolation, and then no one's outreaching to you, and now you're even more isolated and you're sour and bitter about it. Unfortunately, Christians sometimes adopt selfish attitudes and then endorse them. Many don't even attend church regularly, and they excuse that. Some of you who do attend don't get too much involved Monday to Saturday. You get announcement after announcement. It, you just basically ignore it, and you don't get involved in church. You make excuses. Your time and your energy is used for other things, and that's an excuse. You say otherwise, but your actions indicate that it's clear. You're more about your job. You're more about your own personal family. You're more about your own personal pursuits. You're more about those things, and your decisions reflect that, and your time reflects that, and the direction of your life reflects that. You're more about that than the kingdom of God and the church, which you can see was not true in this society. She read about it in Acts 2. So I would say that if, if we're going to end up being anywhere near like the society that we read, we have to combat that. We have to openly bring that out, recognize the error in that, and deal with that. Churches who do not combat society's negative influence are doomed to be like the world. And how can we have an effective mission to the world when we act like the world? God intended the church to be different from society. He designed the church to be a society inside of a society. As the rest of society has become corrupt, they're able to look at the light of the church and see that's proper relationships. That's the way decisions should be made. They are the light, and it draws people to the light. It's a smaller model of right believing and right relationships and right priorities amidst a larger one, a larger one that has absolutely lost its way. Mentioned Philippians 2.15 at the end of our series on uh, conversion, but it kind of just flows into this text saying that you, talking about believers, will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Our Lord Jesus Christ gave us a mission. We studied it back in Acts chapter 1. It was to be witnesses of which the apostles were the focal point of that. They're the centerpiece of that witness because they were the eye and ear witnesses. And they were to proclaim a message that would gather a community as God called people to himself. And as they were converted through genuine repentance, they would gather together in a community. And that community together would move against the tide of the world and be different. By the power of the Holy Spirit, not by their own ingenuity, not by their own willpower. It's Christian community. It's faith lived in community. And today we began looking at that. Your faith lived in Christian community community.
The first local church was founded in the city of Jerusalem, and it was a distinct witnessing society on earth. By the way, God put them where people were. God, in the first church, put it in a city, a large city, a prominent city, an important city. It was different. These Jews, they're all Jews. Every last one of those 3,000 there are Jews. They're all Jews, and they were different from the cold and ritualistic Judaism that surrounded them. They, too, had a society surrounding them. That society was all into the externals, washings and, and cleaning on the outside. It disgusted our Lord and Savior so much that he said, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup, but on the inside you're all dirty. You whitewash the tombs, but inside you're dead men's bones. That was the society in which this church was born. It wasn't a society to encourage true Christianity. They had it tough. They had to swim against the tide. They had to be different. They had to turn to each other to make sure in that community that difference would be brought out. And what we have here is the earliest description of the first church society. In the old series, I talked about how it was the dynamic, word-driven church. It was a learning church, a loving church, a witnessing church, a fellowshipping church, a worshiping church, a giving church. I want to quote again John Pohill. I quoted this last year. I think this is a little longer quote. He's from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kentucky, and he, he summarizes the passage well. He writes, These verses give an ideal portrait of the young Christian community, witnessing the Spirit's presence in the miracles of the apostles, sharing their possessions with the needy among them, sharing their witness in the temple, sharing themselves in the intimacy of their table fellowship. Their common life was marked by praise of God, joy in the faith, and sincerity of heart. And in it all, they experienced the favor of the non-believers and continual blessing of God-given growth. It was an ideal, almost blissful time marked by the joy of their life together and their warmth of the Spirit's presence among them. It could almost be described as the young church's age of innocence. The subsequent narrative of Acts will show that it did not always remain so. Sincerity sometimes gave way to dishonesty. Joy was blotched by rifts in the fellowship, and the favor of the people was overshadowed by persecutions from the Jewish officials. Luke's summaries present an ideal for the Christian community, which must always strive for, constantly return to, and discover anew if it is to have that unity of spirit and purpose essential for an effective witness." End quote. Well, I'm going to give an interpretive caution here as we enter into this because this is a historical text. This is true history, Bible history. But I want to remind you of that, that it is history. It's not command. This is not epistle material. This is not some statement that everything has to be exactly like you read. Um, when you have commands in the Bible, there are commands. When you have history in the Bible, it's history, and history has to be interpreted as history. This is not, in other words, prescription that we have to do everything the way you see it here. But it is description, and from the description, we can learn some things for ourselves. And that would be true of any historical narrative in the inspired word. It would be premature, for example, to conclude that we ought to go sell all of our houses, live together in a commune, and that the elders of the church should be doing these kinds of miraculous signs. We don't even see all of these things exactly paralleled in the other churches that we read about in the New Testament. Nevertheless, all Scripture is inspired and profitable to us. So there is some application for our modern setting, but we have to be careful in how we apply it. 
Many people make mistakes in the way they handle the Bible, and this happens in conservative churches all the time, where they take a description as a prescription. You must have this as law. And they overstep the boundary of God's Word. And it's not a prescription until it actually is, until God says, do this. And they make rules and laws God has not made, and that is wrong. That's a misuse of God's Word. We don't want to take away from God's Word, but we must not add to God's Word either. Sometimes people come like this and they start making commandments that we have to have churches and houses and things like that. And they do not handle God's word correctly. And so we need to make sure that we know how to handle God's word and we know what we're reading. This is history. It is description. It's a marvelous description. We can glean some things from it. But we also need to tie it to what the analogy of scripture says and make sure scripture is interpreting scripture. So we're going to use the analogy of Scripture. We're going to go to the epistles and root our applications in that. So I want to go through a series of descriptions for you. And remember that they are descriptions. And from them, we're going to glean some things for ourselves. And here's description number one, if you're taking notes. Good idea, by the way. Take notes. They were devoted to New Testament doctrine. This group, this new church, the first thing it says they were devoted to. You know, if you could go around the country and say, what is your church into? What is your church dedicated to? What does your church do? What would be the first thing that you would want to hear that a church would be dedicated to? I mean, there's all kinds of answers out there, right? They were devoted to, you might say evangelism. They were devoted to uh, music worship. They were devoted to building houses for the poor. You find all kinds of things that churches say they're devoted to. This church was devoted first and foremost, you see it, to what? apostolic doctrine, New Testament doctrine, because the apostles wrote the New Testament. The teaching of the New Testament, they were devoted to getting that teaching in them. And that's what it says. Look at the beginning of verse 42. And they were, it doesn't say once in a while listening to apostolic doctrine, does it? It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That doesn't mean just they tolerated it, they heard it once in a while. It means they went and they got as much of it as they possibly could. That verb continually devoted, pros cartareo, is a present participle. It means that they had steadfastness in it. They persevered in the teaching. They wanted it. They got more and they wanted more. They went to the apostles. They listened to the apostles. There were 12 of them and they were teaching. Teaching is the word didache. What does it mean? It means doctrine. It means truths about the Christian faith. Apostolic doctrine means the the truths that are brought out in our New Testament. Truths about who? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and His work as Messiah on the cross, His resurrection, His ascension, the things you just finished reading about Peter preaching to the Jews that brought them conviction of sins in Acts 2, all of that about Jesus Christ, that doctrine. They would ask their questions, I'm sure. They'd get their answers, and they devoted themselves to doctrine. They wanted to know about the coming of the Holy Spirit. What was He going to do? What was the mission of the church? That's part of New Testament teaching. What was it that Jesus taught when he was on earth? How did he teach them? Remember how he summarized all of the demands of the law in two commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you already love yourself. What do those mean? How do you apply that? The related verb is actually used in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 28 about doctrine. It describes what Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount. Guess what? The Sermon on the Mount is doctrine. It's teaching. It's didache. 
It's serious. It's logical. It's propositional truths. It's something you have to sit there and actually think about. It's something, it's not to entertain you. It's not to make you feel all that great. It's to get into your mind and get you to think about it. It was truths, if you remember, about not being angry at your brother, not lusting after a woman. Um, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It was teaching about prayer. Pray then in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It was teaching Didache about fasting and the proper way to do that and the right motives. It was teaching about don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store your treasures where? In heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. It was teaching about good deeds. It was teaching about not being anxious, but trusting God for your provision. It was teaching about loving one another. He said, the law and the prophets is summed up with this, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That was Didache. It was teaching about discernment. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. It was teaching. That's what they were dedicating themselves to. Contrary to popular evangelical opinion and sentiment, this church, this early church, did not view serious doctrinal study as divisive. Oh, you hear that all the time. We can't have doctrine in here. We can't do that kind of teaching. It'll divide our church. They didn't, they didn't diminish and demote doctrine as if it was a problem and bringing about divisiveness. No, they did not. They viewed it as bringing them unity, and it did. Contrary to popular evangelical sentiment out there, they did not view teaching doctrine as irrelevant to your life. You can go to many churches around here, and this kind of teaching, they would say, is irrelevant. It does not connect with your life. They don't even know what the Christian life is if you don't have that doctrine in you. Dedication to doctrinal instruction was at the core of their society. You read it for yourself. It drove forward everything that they did. It gave them the rationale for how to respond to Christ, how to love other people. Learning teaching was a continuation of what the disciples had already been doing with their earthly teacher, Yeshua of Nazareth. He was a rabbi. Do you remember? Jesus was a teacher. What does a teacher do? Back then, he took his classroom with him. He walked around outside and he had the people walking behind him. They were called disciples and they were mathetes. They were learners and they came along and Jesus was their teacher and he taught them. He said, sit down. Let me teach you. Consider the lilies of the field. They don't toil or spin. Yet I tell you, Solomon, all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. He taught them. When the, when, the, when the Pharisees or the, or the Sadducees tried to trick him into that, you know, are we supposed to give taxes to Caesar or not? He took an object lesson. He took a coin. He held it up and he said, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they all knew. They said Caesar's. And he said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and what? To God the things that are God's. He taught them doctrine. Things they had to go home and think about. What did Jesus mean by that? I don't know. Go ask him. I'm not going to go ask him. You go ask him. He was a teacher, a good teacher, an excellent teacher, a skilled teacher. They were his pupils. And now they're just continuing that. Jesus was surrounded by disciples by a lake or in a house or along the way. 
They marveled at his doctrine. They marveled at his authority when he ended the Sermon on the Mount. Now that same Jesus, risen and ascended above, is continuing to be the teacher of his disciples on earth. And he's doing it through the mouths of chosen teachers called apostles. It's the apostles, he said, you will teach the people. It's to the apostles, he said, you will lead the church. It's to the apostles, he said, you will be my witnesses. It is the apostles who did the miracles. Sometimes you hear that serious teaching and serious doctrine is only for mature, mature believers. Have you heard that? Any of y'all heard that? Only go to a church if it, it was serious teaching. It's only for mature believers. That we need a different strategy to, ye, to reach newer believers or younger believers. You haven't heard that? I'm sure you have. I hear that all the time. I've heard it from some of you. I have. I've heard some of you say that to me. Please notice that the they who were devoted to the apostles refers back to verse 41. Look at it. Who were they? The 3,000 who were just what? Just saved on the day of Pentecost through Peter's powerful preaching. 3,000 of them repented from sin. Verses 37, 38 reveal that. They were baptized. They were added to the 120 who were gathered in the house when the Holy Spirit fell on them back in chapter 2, verse 1. That means the vast majority of this mega-sized church were brand new believers. This is not a philosophy of ministry for some churches. This is what God did from the very beginning. Now, we know this because if we cross-reference this with the epistles and we go to uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, I'll let you read that on your own. It talks about how God gave the church apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, unto the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith, knowledge of the Son of God, one mature man, and as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, by the craftiness of men in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth and love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Christ. That is the model given for how God wanted every single local church to be done. And we see that model being lived out here in Acts chapter 2. So we know it's an example to follow. The Holy Spirit wanted them. The Holy Spirit moving in their midst wanted their minds to hunger for doctrine about Christ to listen to the apostles. The Holy Spirit did miracles by the hands of the apostles so that everybody would pay attention to what the apostles were teaching them and be devoted to it. And as I said, that description is consistent with the prescriptions of the New Testament that all believers are to learn apostolic doctrine, Bible, not in isolation. You are to learn it in community. 1 Peter 2.1 putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. That's the same as apostolic doctrine. Long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. Colossians 3.16, listen to this because it talks about learning the word in community. It says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another 
That's the community. With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Acts chapter 18 and verse 11 says, Paul settled there a year and six months, that's 18 months, teaching the word of God among them. He wanted them gathered and in community he taught them among them. And they were learning the word together and he did it for 18 months. He constantly was teaching that church. Sometimes evangelists want to know After we go out and we witness to somebody out there and we give them the gospel and they actually do believe, which is a rarity these days, it seems, and they're converted, they actually make the decision for Christ because it does happen. After we've done that and someone gets saved, how are we going to do the follow-up for the new believers? You ever heard that question? How are we going to do the follow-up? What's the right way to do the follow-up? Well, here you have your answer. Look at it again. Here's the follow-up. God intended the local church to be the place to get people grounded in His Word. The local church is God's follow-up strategy for evangelism. It's right in front of you. Do you see it? The most important thing you can do for new believers is get them into the believing community. So what? So they learn the word. What else? They learn to pray. How do you learn to pray except you model it with other people, right? You sit next to someone who's praying and you're too shy to pray out loud. That's fine. You don't have to pray out loud. Just sit next to the person who is praying out loud and learn how to pray from them. Then go home and learn practice to learn to fellowship with other people. Why is the fellowship important? You see that as other believers interact with one another. To learn to confess sins. When you see even leaders in a church saying, I sinned, that helps you to see that humility is something God values and he blesses. You learn to fight the devil. You learn to fight your own sinful flesh. You learn to witness, to memorize scripture and a host of other things. Where do you learn it? You learn it best in community, in the gathered community. The community should be so important to you. The church must organize itself, I think, particularly to help newer believers, to have Bible studies and fundamentals of the faith and places like that where everybody, new people, they haven't got the word, can get in there and get the word. So I love the start of our Growing Disciples time because it's, it's set up now for you. Bring people. Find them. They're not learning. We've got the right class for them now. And it's so important to do that. The preaching that new believers are supposed to be hearing is not so-called relevant storytelling, but doctrine expositional preaching. That is exactly what was happening right here in this raw, unspoiled early church. Listen, it's no coincidence that devotion to doctrine is listed first by the inspired writer. Devotion to doctrine is the key to a church's maturity. This is the correct biblical philosophy of ministry. I know other people think that there are other philosophies of ministry. You cannot find in the New Testament a different philosophy of how God wants to do ministry. It's here. It's repeated again and again and again, no matter which epistles you go to. It is not a style. It is what God said to do. They had effective evangelism, yes. Did they have joyful worship, yes. Did they have great relationships, yes. But everything in this community of believers starts and is driven by the serious preaching and teaching of doctrinal instruction to the people of God over and over and over again. It was this intense focus upon the teaching of the apostles that resulted in experienced Christian unity and the joy. Look down at verse 46, just to jump ahead a little bit. Luke describes those early Christians day by day, continuing with one mind. How did they get one mind? You can't possibly have a large group of people like that with one mind if they're not all being taught and taught and taught the same things, and they all come to adopt and all come to believe those same doctrines. It's the only way to get unity. Far be it from dividing people, it's the only thing that really brings them together. 
We cannot even have one mindset here in this church. If people have their own ideas and they're listening to wrong teachers and they're not getting proper apostolic doctrine. The longer I'm a pastor, the more I agree with those who have testified the greatest need in the broader evangelical church today is teaching so that it results in discernment because people are affirming things that are true and amening them and they're going right out and they're affirming things that are not true and they see no difference. We need sound, diligent doctrinal instruction so we're not like children tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine that comes along. This is why we must expect strong teaching from our leaders. I'm glad for the testimony already first hour. Did you come first hour? Do you want apostolic doctrine? Is teaching important to you? We need to demand from them, do your homework. Make sure you're teaching well. That's what we need from our teachers. Not just someone who speaks well, not just someone who's been in the church a long time, but someone who's willing to submit to being trained so that they can handle God's Word accurately. Listen, guys, there are many forces that are trying to influence local churches. I don't know if you feel them. I do. I feel the pressures on me all the time. I feel the comments and the different things that are sent to me. There are all kinds of pressures on the local church to change. Sometimes there are good things that come along and people want to do the good things. But if the good things crowd out the most important things, they're no longer good. We must never let that happen in this church. Again, I say even sometimes I hear comments from you, and I know you mean them well. You might say something like, we get too much teaching here. You do not understand. You do not understand. That mentality is just the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of the downfall of a church. Satan's entire strategy is to get the people of God, get their mind off of the Word of God, any way he can do it, either by denying that it's true or by saying it's true, but you should really read this other book rather than that, or by saying it's okay as far as it goes, but psychology has the more deeper answers to your problems. Satan is always trying to diminish your faith and confidence actively in using the Word of God or turn us into Pharisees where we're reading it and amening it but not going home and relying on it, whatever he can do. First thing he said to Satan was, uh, first thing that Satan said to Eve was what? Has God said? Let's twist it. Let's change it. We don't want you listening to it. We don't want you doing it, practicing it. The Holy Spirit, when he came into this group of disciples, he wanted the word of Jesus Christ to be front and center in the congregation. Only then can Jesus speak to his church. Only then can believers mature in their faith. Only then can we know God the way he is meant to be known. Only then will the witnessing and the worshiping flourish. Only then will the community of believers have a genuine and true love for one another. Friendliness alone is not true love. There are churches that are friendly, but when they're put to the test, there's not real true love there. There are churches that are very friendly. That's not the same thing as true love. True love is sacrifice for people that you don't even like. That's what true love is. And I think there's true love in this church. I'm blessed of God to have been the recipient of your love towards me. And I just pray you continue to love one another and take this seriously. All right, second description. Forgot about the clock again. This is hard on me. Second description. They were devoted to the fellowship. They were devoted to the fellowship. Notice the little word and. That's important. And they were continually, they were devoting themselves continually to apostolic doctrine and to the fellowship. Both. Both the teaching and the fellowship. So they went to Bible study and they had lots of donuts. Good. The ones of you that laughed, you know what true fellowship is. The ones of you that didn't have a clue, didn't have a clue, you need to listen in here a little bit more. 
The word fellowship is koinonia. The word literally means partnership or sharing. Fellowship involves mutual action, common interest, common bond. The fellowship means the fellowship of those believers. It's another way of saying they were dedicated to the people, the believers. They were dedicated to the church. They did not just listen to the word and then scatter. They got the apostolic doctrine. They were devoted to that. And they were also devoted to the people they gathered with. This context, it's clear. It's the community of believers. I like to point out, whenever I talk about this verse, that they were devoted to the only two things in our world that are eternal. The word of God and other human souls. Everything else we don't take with us. We get to heaven, we realize the Word of God is still there and the souls of people will still be there. They were dedicated to those two things. Very wise to be devoted to things eternal. Very wise. That's what they were doing. The Holy Spirit urged them. This applies to us, I believe. Focus on the Word of Christ. And as you do, if you're hearing it properly, what you're not hearing is, it's all about me. What you're hearing is, it's all about God and others. In that order. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 speaks of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's what they had. They had the fellowship that the Holy Spirit formed in a community of believers who had like precious faith. This is not Lord of the Rings. You know, the fellowship of the ring. What was their fellowship about? The ring. Getting the ring to, what was the name of that land? Mordor. Our life is not centered around some little temporary mission. It's about the calling of God to the church in the world. We all should be listening to the same master and saying, here's what he told us to do. Now together we're going to do that work. The Holy Spirit speaks in the Bible. The Holy Spirit puts us in a community of other people where they're also listening to the Bible and tells us, love one another. Fellowship is relationship. It's partnership. It's commonality. It's shared among the people of God. Fellowship is all-encompassing. We laughed about the donuts. You can have fellowship around a donut. You can have fellowship when you're praying in a small group on Wednesday night with others. You have fellowship when you're sitting here together receiving the Word of God as community and not going off somewhere else to listen, but gathering with believers, listening to the Word of God, singing with other people, doing the work over at the facility. People are working together. That's fellowship. Going and spending time with someone who's sick in the hospital and encouraging them. That's fellowship. It encompasses all these things. Taking the Lord's Supper together at one table like a family. That's fellowship. Witnessing together. Having the encouragement of witnessing with someone else's fellowship. You ever been out witnessing and you get stuck with something? You call up somebody else or you text them, what do I say now? And that person joins you and there's partnership. The Reesmans are in Togo right now. We have partnership with them in the work that they're doing, evangelizing as they're able and helping the sick. That's an extension of our work. They're partners with us. That's fellowship. Fellowship even extends to sharing physical belongings with one another. In Romans 15, 26, it says Macedonia. That means the churches that were in the region of Macedonia. Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor 
among the saints in Jerusalem. Did you know that that word contribution there is the word, guess it, fellowship? And so fellowship is an all-encompassing idea. Fellowship time is more than standing. When we break up here and you're going back, you're going to start talking with people and you're going to think that's fellowship. What you're doing now is fellowship. It's broader. Some verses, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. They had trouble with church attendance back then, by the way. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Actually, what that verse says is the closer that we are to the second coming, we should be more dedicated to the fellowship. That means we should be more dedicated meeting together now 2,000 years beyond them than they were. Romans 12.10 also commands this. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. Romans 12.13, contributing to the needs of the saints practicing hospitality. Hospitality is a way of being devoted to the fellowship. Romans 12, 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. And we could ply that and say, get out of your normal little bands that you get together with and meet the same little small groups that happen. Go talk to somebody new. Associate with others. We're all part of a fellowship. We don't just find, well, I have five friends at church and when this thing breaks up, I'm going to go talk to my same five friends. Come on then it's really just about you and your friendship. Not, it's not about Christ and His cause. We need to understand we don't go to church. We are the church. The church is to assemble as we have done today. But we're always a family of believers. We have to think that way, act that way. doesn't matter if we've done it imperfectly. We have to keep coming back to the same commandments. It's unacceptable for any Christian to stay away from church. It's unacceptable for any Christian not to be devoted to the body of believers. Your lack of regular involvement with other believers, and I don't mean just showing up on Sundays. That's, that's easy to do. But your lack of regular involvement with other believers shows either... You don't understand Christian doctrine very well. Or you're just stubbornly, stubbornly resisting God. To be neglectful or weak or sporadic with time with other believers is to be ne- neglectful of your entire relationship to the body of Christ. It's time to recommit yourself to what Christ is teaching you. You must so order your lives that the fellowship gets the priority. It's not just about your nuclear family. I am not discouraging time with a family. Our society draws too much time, particularly if dads, away from their homes. But it's not just about you and your family. I come to church on Sunday, and then the rest of the week is about my job, my hobbies, my family. No, it has to also be about your family of families, the church. You have to work at it. You have to work at developing your relationships with other people. Now, Jerusalem was a large city for ancient times, but we would have considered pretty small. It's pretty easy for people to walk out on the streets and bump into other Christians. Now we have to endure, you know, I-95. We have to handle Route 100. You have to work at it. You, you have to work at it. If you don't work at it, it won't happen. And then time will come by and you say, well, I don't feel close to the people there. Well, of course you don't feel close to the people there. You didn't work at it. 
How does a busy, complex, hectic, transient, spread out, overscheduled, flu-spreading modern church become a taking meals together, sharing physical possessions, devoted to corporate prayer, gathered to hear the word, joyful community of believers? The answer is found in Doug's class. Go to his class next week. <laughs> Crazy busy. No, I think he's full already. You missed it. If traffic jams and chores and errands and business and children's schedules don't keep you from doing the other things that you want to do, how is it that they keep you from doing the things needed to be done in the church? You don't want the answer to that. The answer is it's church is not a priority to you. You're not devoted to the church. You're not like them. And don't play the victim. Well, you just don't know my situation. Right? You don't know my situation. Yeah, but I don't have any friends. No one's outreaching to me. So who are you outreaching to? Who are you loving? Some of you don't have relationships in here. Would you look around? There are old people here. There are young people here. There are nice people here. There are mean people here. There are people with about every kind of background and desire and hobby. You can't make a friend here. There are people that have left our church saying that. I can't make a friend. Your heart's cold. You're an excuse maker. You don't have relationships because you demand too much from relationships, and you don't give enough to relationships. In the old days, we just said you're selfish. Now there's a fancier way of describing what you're really going through. I don't believe it. In case you have been missing what Jesus Christ has been teaching in New Testament apostolic doctrine, this is it. In case you've been missing that. I probably don't have any time, do I? Yes, I do. <laughs> Third description. And I'm glad we do because verse 42. We're still in verse 42. The next description is they broke bread together. Do you see that? They broke bread. Now, some people have misread this. There's no and there. It doesn't say they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. There's no and there. Do you notice? This is not four things they were devoted to. There's two things they were devoted to, apostolic doctrine and the fellowship. Now, in appositional relationship to that comes the explanation of the fellowship, the breaking of bread and, not prayer, because you could be devoted to prayer at home, but the prayers. These will be the next two things. The fellowship is being narrowly defined here as devoted to the breaking of, uh, having the breaking of bread and the prayers. What is the fellowship? The breaking of bread and the prayers. We'll get to the prayers next week. Let's talk about the breaking of bread. Breaking of bread refers to the Lord's Supper, keeping the Lord's Supper. It was part of their mealtime. They would pass a loaf of bread, uh, and it was probably unleavened bread. They would break it, literally just snap it, pass it on. They'd break the bread together. It was something they would do. They would pass it around to the table. Here's, here's the bread. You break, you take a piece. You break, you take a piece. You break, you take a piece. They're at the table. They're, they're together. They're eating. It's a common meal. In Jude, verse 12, we find out that early in the uh, early church, they actually called these love feasts. 
Later, as you read in church history, the pagans would start to make fun of the Christians' love feasts and start calling them giant sexual orgies. And they weren't. They were times where they were just sharing love and meal together and caring for one another. But because they had that name, Love Feast, and because the world couldn't understand any other kind of love, they just slandered them as having these sexual orgies. But they were love feasts. In Acts 20 and verse 7, it says that these were done on the first day of the week. Of course, it's Jesus who instituted the Lord's Supper. And he did it, did you know, during a Passover meal. The bread then was symbolic, as other things were symbolic in a Passover meal. It was symbolic of provision. When they ate the bread, they remembered that God provides for their needs. That whole idea of bread from heaven was symbolized in the manna in the Old Testament. The wine, and yes, it was alcoholic wine, it symbolized Christ's blood poured out to pay for sins. He even said this is the blood of the covenant when he held it out to them. Why is it that we must take the cup and drink the cup? Why is it we have to take the piece of bread and eat the bread? And we eat it and we drink it as symbols because it reminds us we have no life in ourselves. Just like if you stopped eating, you'd die eventually. Some of you might do okay for a few days. little hint there. But if you didn't eat, you'd get sick, you'd get weak, you'd get a disease, and you'd die. Same thing spiritually. If we did not have Christ as our nutrition, you wouldn't have any spiritual life at all in you. You, you would have no life. You would never get eternal life. So you have to eat that. Not because that bread and that wine has been blessed in some way by some priest behind the curtains that did something magical to it, some incantation. It's not Christianity at all. When he said, this is my body, it was obvious it wasn't his body, literally. When he held it in front, context always rules. We used to play football in the streets, and we'd take a leaf or a rock, and we'd huddle, and we'd put a rock down, a leaf, and we'd look at each other, and we'd say, John, this is you. Bill, this is you. You go along, you go in and out, and I'll throw you the ball. Everybody knew when he said, this is you, that's not literal. That's symbolic. John's not the rock, or Bill's not the leaf. It's amazing how people miss that. This is my body. No, it's not. It's, your body's holding it, but now I know what you mean. It was immediately, no, no one had any confusion with that. But you must eat the bread and drink the wine to show you have no life in yourself but are completely dependent on Christ's life, just as you're dependent on food. And that's why taking this is commanded by God. It's not called a suggestion. It's called an ordinance. Why is it called an ordinance? Because Christ commanded it. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this is not a suggestion. It's a command. Do this in remembrance of me. We don't possess life in ourselves. We need constant reminder that Christ is our life. Everything we have comes from him. So we do this. Acts chapter, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 16 asks, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? And the meal went along with a time of communion. If all that was meant was we were going to commune with Christ, we could do this at home. But we gather together and we sit at the same table. We have the same Father, the same Lord, and we partake together. Why? Because we're in community. And this is one of the symbols of our community. 
Steve Lawson, in a 2001 article in Bibsack, writes this, As they were taught the rich truths about Christ's finished work on the cross, their worship experience at the Lord's table intensified. The deeper they dug into the Word, the higher their hearts soared in worship. You hear the preaching of the Word of God. You're dedicated to people. You come to the time of joy and reflection. You think on your Christian faith, and it just adds so much more, you see. And it's all focused on Christ. Beloved, communion is not an option for the community of believers. It is a command. Again, I say we rightly call it an ordinance. An ordinance is an order. It's a decree. It's a rule. It's a regulation. It's a law. Christ wants us communing together with him regularly in this and with each other. At communion, all believers share an equal spot at the table. Nobody gets a better spot than anybody else. The one bread of communion symbolizes the one body of Christ. There are, is no rank and, and, and file that is given in the body of Christ where some are more important than the others. We all eat of the same bread. We all rely on the same Christ. That's our community. You know, when you go home, there's probably a tendency when you eat meals... This person runs to their bedroom. This one goes to the TV. This one goes to the basement, right? It's hard to get everybody together, have a meal. But how, how important it is, get everybody together as a family. Everybody sit at the same table. Have a meal together. Dads, insist on that. Why? Why do you insist on that? Because you want your family to remember you're a what? You're a family, right? That's why we want everybody come. Come to church. Come to the time of communion. Remind ourselves, we're not just doing this as a ritual. This is who you are. This is your identity. Our faith was meant to be lived in a community of believers. And that very table in front of us indicates that. It's important. We are the same church. We're to sit at the same table. We have the same Lord. We're part of the same fellowship. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology writes, and I'll close with this. When Christians participate... In the Lord's Supper together, which we're about to do, they give a clear sign of their unity with one another. In fact, Paul says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, where we all partake of the one bread. 1 Corinthians ten seventeen. Father, bless us as we come and approach you and your Lord Jesus Christ in communion with you and share this time together as a community of believers, having listened to your doctrine and been dedicated to your people. Speak to your people, Father. Change their practices and hearts as needs to be. From our elders on down, correct us, Father. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.